good morning, family. How are you doing? You can be a little bit louder than that. Good morning, family. How are you doing at our campuses as well? There we go. Do me a huge, huge favor with me at the count of three. Let's just say hi to all of our campuses. One, two, three. What's up, all of our campuses? We love you. Hi. Hi. My name is John Holm. I am the Next Gen pastor here at Seacoast. And what does Next Gen mean? I have no idea. Uh, we're trying to, no, I'm just kidding. It is really, my role is now over birth through up to college and uh, just helping our teams um, and coaching our teams and almost kind of being the pastor to our kids and youth pastors. And it has just been an honor to be in the trench with them and to serve you, serve this church. And so because this is legacy, one of two of our legacy weekends, I just wanted to say thank you uh, for just giving uh, and praying for and encouraging and your generosity and stepping into the lives of our kids and the lives of our students. It just means the world to me, especially those of you who volunteer with, with kids and students. I get paid to do this. You don't. And um, that just means the absolute world to me for people like you who serve our kids and have a heart for the next gen. I just wanted to give you kind of a little snapshot of what God's been doing. And uh, there's a lot more that you can see on our legacy reports. If you go to seacoast.org backslash legacy, you can see projects and reports and that kind of thing. But just this past year, we saw over 76, a little bit over 70 kids make a decision to give their life to Jesus at kids camp. It's worth shouting about. It's worth shouting about. We saw over 209, over 200 students at our summer camps make a decision to give their life to Jesus. It's just phenomenal. We've seen over 40 baptisms and just this year alone, and over the past five years, we started something called Heart 4, which is our missions initiative for students, is Heart for the Hurting and Those Who Haven't Heard, and we've seen our students give over $100,000 to missions. Now, granted, some of that's your money, <laughs> so thank you for giving your money to your kids to give to our missions initiatives, but... They built over eight wells. They've, we've, we, we built a church. We built a school. We paid for four teachers in South Africa's salaries. We've bought um, motorcycles and goats, and we've put Bibles uh, all throughout Haiti. I think thousands of Bibles in Haiti. It's just so many things that our, our, our kids are a part of, not just going, but, but giving. Again, heart for the hurting and those who haven't heard. Two, two things, right? The gospel and some monetary pieces. You know, um, being that this weekend is uh, Veterans Day weekend, um, could we have our veterans just quickly stand out of our campuses and here and just, again, honor, honor you. I love you. Thank you for the sacrifice that you have, you have made. Um, we live in the freedoms of those who fought for us, <laughs> right? So thank you. Thank you so much for your service. We live in those freedoms that others have fought for us. Many have sacrificed greatly for their skin-in-the-game convictions and so that we wouldn't have to, right? Um, and this generation, for those who fought physically, we also have people who are fighting spiritually. And this generation needs us to have skin in the game for them. They need us to have convictions to live out and fight for them and on their behalf. And a lot of times when... We talk about giving. It's not just a way for God to raise money. He doesn't need our money. We know that, right? We, we know that. He wants our heart. And it's a way for raising people with surrendered hearts and a way for people to have skin in the game. And I think the best investment we can make, there's two top investments. The best investment we can make is first and foremost on us, our salvation. 
our decision to live for God. Best decision, best investment. But I, I believe the best, second best investment and the best ROI on your investment is into the next generation. And so just be in prayer for us as we raise those, those funds to help accomplish some of the, the dreams we have and the visions we have. Again, leadership has said it, it's, it's at the speed of our giving and our generosity to help get those things accomplished. But I wanna ask you a question this morning and I want us to kind of wrestle together some of these thoughts. What is it that formed your worldview? What is it that formed your worldview? And I'm gonna give you a definition of the worldview, and it's this, it's, it's the foundation and framework for our thoughts and our actions. What is it in your life that created the foundation and the framework of your thoughts, your thought life, and your actions, how you behave? Was it your family? Was it friendships? Was it uh, culture, media? Um, some, some are saying now that like this generation, brain, their brains are just soaking in, they're marinating in media right now, right? And was it popular opinions or influence or experiences or choices that you made? All of those things play a part in what has shaped your worldview. It's said, and this is a very scary statement, it's not a John Holmes statement, it's actual uh, a statement said by other um, uh, psychologists. It's said that, the, that, that by the age 13, age 13, remember when you were 13? How smart were you then? By the age 13, a person's worldview has been mostly, if not almost completely, developed. 13. I work with 13-year-olds. We've got some ways to go, right? You know, when I was, I remember myself at 13. It wasn't a pretty sight. So much so that there are a group of researchers that um, set out to study uh, fleas, of all things, fleas. Everyone say fleas with me. Not the bass player from Red Hot Chili Peppers, but actual those little things that have an amazing ability to jump. They said that if uh, you put a flea, if a flea was a human size, they would be able to jump a couple football fields long high, right? They were designed to just like leap. And so they, they studied what a unique way to condition them to their environment. So they put a group of fleas in a jar and they closed the lid and they agitated the jar as best they could and they let the jar sit for a week. And so as the fleas were in this environment, being conditioned to their environment, they would jump and jump and jump and hit the lid, hit the lid, hit the lid, hit the lid. So some, till at some point, they started to get smart in their flea brain that this is not going anywhere. So then they would begin to jump just a little bit lower than the lid. Lower than the lid, lower than the lid, so that way they were never touching the lid. Then when the scientists about a week later took the lid off of the jar, they noticed that the fleas would not jump out of the jar. Although the lid was removed, there was no restriction, was removed, they would not jump out of the jar. They were conditioned for the rest of their flea life to jump lower than the limits set for them. Here's the scary thing. When the fleas reproduced and had offspring, the offspring would automatically follow their example never knowing that there was a lid there to begin with, never recognizing that they could literally jump out of the jar. They followed the example that was set before them. Pretty daunting, right? Kind of a scary thing. You see, lids change things. Lids, they change us. And I'm gonna jump into 
some scripture this morning found in Romans chapter 12, verse two. And if you have the word of God with me, if you would turn there, they're gonna be on the screens as well, but sometimes we like to highlight things and underline things and write things, and I would encourage you to do that. But I'm gonna read a couple translations of the same verse. I'm gonna read the Boomer translation, the Gen Xer translation, and the Millennial translation. You ready? I didn't have the, uh, the KJV one. All you gotta do is just add a couple THs at the end of everything and you're good to go. So here we go, NIV Romans 12, two says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing or the renewth of your mind. Do not conform. The Gen X version, New Living, says this, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. The millennial version, the message version says this, don't copy and don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Be careful what you copy. Be careful who you copy. You see, what you behold shapes what you believe and changes how you behave. What you behold shapes what you believe and changes how you behave. Culture um, tends to shape us most deeply by what it presents as normal. So, is culture shaping your understanding of faith or is faith shaping your understanding of culture? Everyone say, break the mold. Say it again, turn to your neighbor and say, break the mold. Here's a quick definition of break the mold. Put an end to a restrictive pattern of events or behavior by doing things in a markedly different way. Another one is to do something in a completely new way. The word Paul uses for renew in Romans 12, the Greek word he uses is anakinosis. Say anakinosis. I hope I said that right. If you just want to say Anakin, you might be close. But anakinosis, really, in Greek, there's two words for new. It's this, neos and kainos. And he pulls both of those words out of this one Greek word. And really what neos means is this, new in point of time, recent or revived. So if I were to create something brand new, that's new, that's neos. It's in point of time, I just created something new. But then kainos means new in character and nature. So he's saying, be new in point of time. You make a decision to give your life to Jesus, right? You're a new person, free. Salvation is free, right? You're a new person. But the kainos, the, the character, the nature, that's the new life that has to come along with the new person. You can't have one without the other. You need to have both. New person, free. New life, there are some, some costs to that. And your new life is going to cost you your old one. You see, we are always confronted with the patterns of this world. Always confronted with the patterns of this world. And the pattern is the problem. See, renewing our mind and getting our hearts in the right place, uh, is a, it's a daily practice. It's a daily fight. Like, I didn't just renew my mind at age 15 and then I was good. Like, good, I renewed my mind, changed, changed some, some things in my, my heart and changed some things in my mind, I'm good. No, it is a daily fight. How many of, how many of us in this, in this place that are our campuses, you know it's, that, it's a fight. Like, I, 
easily we can lean towards negative, right? And a lot of times, it's not just, I'm not just talking about our attitude. There's a lot of things in our mind and in our heart that need to be renewed on a regular daily basis. You can see our flesh and our enemy fights against this new life that is hidden in Christ. Colossians 3.3 says that we are hidden in Christ. And you know that Satan has one agenda. One agenda is to keep the lost, lost. Separation from God. Distracted, distracted, confused, confused to keep the lost, lost. You see, when it comes to renewing our mind, I think there's four areas that we need to navigate well. I'm gonna give you the four areas up front, then I'm gonna kind of unpack them with you real quick, and then we'll spend some time just uh, worshiping together. The four areas are this. There's the world you live in. There's the weight we live with. There's the word we live by. And then there's the walk we live out. The world you live in, the weight you live with, the word you live by, and the walk you live out. The tension, right? The tension of the world we live in. It's broken, it is, it is messy, but the word says that we do not fit here. <laughs> this is not our home. It's not our home, this is our calling. And so we're in the world, but not of the world. So how we combat the world we live in is by guarding your heart. Proverbs says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. In the Old Testament, the word heart was used more than 800 times, but more than 200 times it was used for this, for one's thought life, one's emotions, choices, and those things that motivated and molded someone. Why did Solomon tell um, his son with all vigilance to guard your heart. Why did he say that? Because our thought life controls the rest of our life. And he also said he implies that you're living in a combat zone in which there are casualties. So the best way to guard your heart is to set guardrails. Are you familiar with what guardrails are? For those of us who drive, guardrails are on the things in the sides of like hills and mountains and, and areas that could be trouble if you went off the road, so it keeps you safe keeps you in check, I would think the, the churchy word for guardrail would be conviction. Guardrails equal convictions. And so know what to do when you don't know what to do. That's what convictions are. Because what do you do when you don't know what to do? We revert back to our habits. We revert back to whatever was the easiest, the path of least resistance. We revert back to, so Convictions in your life have pre-decision decisions, pre-choice choices, so that when the moment comes, you know the answer and what the outcome is gonna be. Know what to do when you don't know what to do. You see, the world says, follow your heart, but the Bible <laughs> says that the heart is wicked above all else who can trust it, right? Um, so a little guilty disclosure, and for so those of you who are maybe over 40 in this space with me, um, I liked the band Roxette. Anybody remember Roxette? <laughs> Don't hate me. I, I, liked, I liked other stuff too. But one of the songs was, listen to your heart, right? Like falsetto for those of you guys who are singers. Listen to your heart. Or, or a newer translation would be, the heart wants what it wants, right? You know what one of the worst pieces of advice is? Follow your heart. 
It's one of the worst pieces of advice. Unless your heart is seriously following Jesus, then follow your heart. The word says to guard your heart, to guard it. You see, commitments are born out of conviction, not convenience. And conviction is born in the prayer closet. Conviction is born at the altar. Conviction is born by reading the word of God and saying, God, penetrate my heart with your words. Convict me of what my life might be like and what my life is and make sure that I'm on the path that you have called me to. And commitments are born out of conviction. So when you make some commitments, there's conviction that is behind that decision. It's not born out of convenience. And if we wait until it's convenient, we're in the moment to make a decision or on where we stand, then it will always be up for sale with what's most convenient at the time. You see, the moment you believe the cost is greater than the reward is the moment that we bow to the cost. And I'm praying for a generation that doesn't bow. Not just the generation I work with, I'm praying for your generation, my generation. Because the generation I work with needs your example. Needs your example. So a little side note real quick, side note on guarding your heart and relationships. Here's the, here's the side note, be careful who you give your heart to. Just because you have chemistry doesn't mean you have destiny. I think a lot of times, um, because of loneliness or whatever it might be, um, we, we put our convictions aside and instead of really waiting and, and seeking God first, right, and, and putting God first, we, we begin to settle for Mr. or Mrs. Right Now versus Mr. and Mrs. Right. And so that's just a side note, um, but you know, if it breaks God's heart, why would we ever think it would fulfill ours? Convictions protect you in moments of compromise because your feelings will never, ever feel like it. So I wanna look at, um, real quick, at Daniel and his, his boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were the names that were changed, but I think a lot of times we remember those names more than their actual birth names, right? Isn't that weird? Um, but they used Daniel instead of his, his changed name was, was Belteshazzar, right? So but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I wanna look at them because I'm gonna look at their story because they didn't know the end of their story. Did you know that? They did not know the end of their story. And I believe that there were more, scholars say that there were more young people taken into captivity than just Daniel and his three friends. But Daniel and his three friends were the only four who, who refused to compromise on their convictions. Matter of fact, in chapter one, it says that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Daniel guarded his heart, purposed in his heart. So they didn't know that the lions would not devour. They didn't know that the fire would not burn. They lived with conviction because God was worth it, period. They didn't know the ending of their story. And a lot of us don't know the ending of our story either. But does that keep us away from setting convictions in our hearts? See, they, they didn't condition their convictions for the fire. They didn't condition their convictions for the lions. And I think a lot of times, you know, oh man, I got a devotion or I got to preach, so I better condition my convictions so God, you, you kind of anoint me in the moment. No, 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 they, don't condition your convictions. They, were, they, had, they lived with convictions not knowing the ending of their story. You see, in chapter one, they were teenagers. Teenagers. In chapter three, with the fiery furnace, they were in their 40s and 50s. And in chapter six, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, he was in his 80s. Conviction from teenage years. 
Don't tell me they're not important. Don't tell me those years aren't important. 13, they're making their decision on worldview. We need you. <laughs> they need you. You see, we have a generation that is so badly chasing influence that we've lost what it looks like to pursue Jesus. And that breaks my heart. It, it, it breaks my heart, and we need a generation, and we need better examples in what we say, the way we live, and our love, and our faith, and our purity. That's found in 1 Timothy 4.12. It's our verse for custom students. Don't let anyone think less of you because you're young, but be an example to all believers in what you say, the way you live, your love, your faith, and your purity. But this generation needs to see it in us because if it's dead in us, it will not live in them. If it's dead in us, it will not live in them. The lid will be set. So we'll, real quick parenting side note. I think there's four things that every child needs to see from us. Physical parents and spiritual parents. Here they are, real quick. They need to see time together. We need time together. Not just being in the room, but being present, being there. They need to see a demonstration of God's love, his grace, his forgiveness. They need, to, they need direction for their life. And they need to see a generation. They need to see parents, fathers, mothers, spiritual fathers and mothers who live with the cost of conviction on their life. So there's the world you live in, there's the weight we live with. The hurts, the distractions, the weight of the world, the weight of the confusion that's happening in this world, the weight of, of the arguments that the, of the world we live in, and how do we, how do we uh, combat that in, in through scripture? That is set your mind. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Colossians 3.2 says that. You know, there's two things that shape and mold our life, and those are lies and truth. Psychologists actually tell us that there's two mental laws that contribute to our, our life, and they are the law of concentration and the law of substitution. The law of concentration says this, whatever we think about grows and becomes part of us. Substitution says this, our mind can only hold one thought at a time. Positive or negative, one thought at a time. You see, our thoughts, they're magnetic, and each one attracts a certain reality, and sin starts with a thought or temptation before it ever starts as an action, and so that's why scripture says that we need to flee, not fleas, <laughs> we need to run, we need to run, and someone told me after the other services, said we need to be a fleeting generation, get it, dad joke. <laughs> Definition of temptation is this, is anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of obedience to God. You see, we don't, I don't see much in the generation I work with and in the generations, I don't see much of a being culture, I see a flirting culture. Temptation has a location, it looks for isolation, and it loves flirtation. And a lot of times we see, you know, through Samson's example, we take a nap in the lap of temptation versus actually just stepping away from it. James says, but each person is tempted by their own evil desires. Their desires lead them on and drag them away. When these desires are allowed to remain, they lead to sin. And when sin is allowed to remain and grow, it leads to death. So fleeing begins, begins in the mind, taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. John, that sounds, a lot of those things sound easier said than done. I know, right? Uh, read scripture, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Great, renew my mind. 
But how, John, do I do that? How do I walk that out? What does that look like? It's by taking those thoughts captive quickly. Within the first five, 10 seconds, take those thoughts captive because the longer we let it linger, the weaker our no becomes. So I want to, I want to teach you a simple method. It's called HALT. Everyone say HALT. A little bit louder. All the way from the campuses. One more time. HALT. If you're hurting or hungry, <laughs> angry, lonely, or tired, do not make any decision. <laughs> Take a nap. Go to sleep. You know sleep is spiritual. Rest. If you're hurting, a lot of times in those moments, we're hurting, we're angry, we're lonely, we're tired. We're gonna make some kind of decision that we're gonna get back at someone where this is gonna make me feel better versus just actually the situation being better. Halt. Just halt. Fleeing also requires sometimes a physical removal of yourself, a physical act. You know, Joseph in Potiphar's house, when Potiphar's wife was advancing on him, he needed to get out of there, right? Like he needed to get going. He needed to flee because the convictions were already set in his heart that he would not bow. He would not change. And so I want to illustrate this real quick. Um, sometimes we need to change our environment. We need to remove ourselves from our environment. If you're in a, in a situation that if you're struggling with an addiction, never go to that space where you're struggling, right? Like if you're struggling with alcohol, you, we, don't, we don't just go meet somebody at a bar. If you're struggling with what you're looking at on, online, I know there's some young kids in here, so if you're struggling with, with staying up late at night and, and navigating internet in spaces you can't, do, you need to remove yourself. So for the next 30 seconds, I wanna illustrate it like this. I don't want you to think of the color green at all. Don't think of green. Matter of fact, don't even think of avocados. Don't touch me. Don't even think of grass. Don't think of nothing green, okay? The campuses, nothing green. Can you do that for me? Can you do that for me? Don't think of green. Did anybody think of anything green? <laughs> like, here's the thing. You can't fight, you can't resist what you're supposed to flee. You can't, you just can't do that. I, I, whether you believe it or not, um, from how I look, I'm a blue belt in karate. Um, I did not go any further than that because just was a lot of, and I started having kids, but blue belt in karate. And, and one of our sessions, they were teaching us how to disarm somebody with a weapon, a gun and a knife. And I'm like, all right. And the teacher said, the, the sensei said, um, Hollywood is a joke. <laughs> if you're trying to dismantle somebody with a knife, you will get cut. So matter of fact, he gave us all of us markers and we had our geese on and they were the white geese, you know, with our belts and proudly wearing my blue belt. And uh, we were now in a knife fight, trying to like take the knife from our opponent. And at the end of the, the illustration, he was trying to illustrate all of our geese were marked everywhere. I mean, I literally hit my friend and I was like, Rah! You know, and he had a mark all the way. I'm like, it was, you cannot, <laughs> what you're supposed to flee, you can't fight. You know, well, I can entertain one more negative comment. I'm good. Or I can, I'm okay staying up a little bit later and it's just an innocent click. Or I can, we're supposed to flee. You see, um, just changed my notes. Uh, let me give you, let me give you a couple 
illustrations of how to go from a lie and a stronghold and a bad pattern to truth, freedom, and a renewed mind. It's this, if you're struggling with bitterness, fight to forgive. It's a fight, it's a daily, it's a daily thing, the renewing of our mind. If you're struggling with control, fight to surrender. Idolatry, fight for contentment. Jealousy, fight to be grateful. Negativity, fight to be encouraging. Struggling with greed or selfishness, fight to be generous. You see, it's a, it's a constant fight because what's the middle letter in the word sin? I, I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, I wanna do it my way, I get in the way a lot of the times. That's why he's saying renew your mind, get rid of I, put it on him. And so when we mess up and we will and we do because we're flawed and we're human, run back to Jesus, repent and reset your mind. The world we live in, the weight we live with, with the word we live by. Has the Bible said anything about what you might be wrestling with? Has the Bible said anything about what you might be thinking on? And where the Bible stands, so should I. And how do we do that? Is we fix our eyes. We fix our eyes and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, five times in scripture, it's, the word fix is used, and really that's God just giving us clear direction of our focus. And our first line of defense, our only line of defense, but the first line of defense has to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, because what you stare at steers you. I was riding my bike the other day, and I was looking at something, and I saw my bike swerve like this way. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Even like in riding your car, driving your car, if you're staring at an accident, you start to veer. What you stare at will steer you. Matter of fact, I want to illustrate it this way right here. We recognize the first swimmer, right, Phelps, but does anybody remember the second swimmer? Nope. Because <laughs> Phelps was getting probably his like 80th gold medal. But here's the thing. Where is Phelps looking? He's, he's looking at the goal. He's, his eyes are fixed. Where is my man looking? He's looking straight at Phelps. He's like, I think I can, I think I can. Here's the thing, he is so close to Phelps, but he did not place. He didn't even make the podium. He did not place in that heat. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You see, I'm not gonna consult culture on my, on, on, on my relationships and my friendships. I'm gonna fix my eyes on Jesus. And I'm not gonna consult culture on how I raise my kids and, and be a husband to my wife. I'm gonna fix my eyes on Jesus. And I'm not gonna consult culture on what's right or what's wrong. I'm gonna fix my eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author, like the author, the one, like, the one who designed you, right? can define you, and the, the one who created you, who cares for you the most. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and no matter how, how long or how deeply we've walked with God, we never outgrow the need to hear that Jesus took our place on the cross. Like, shed his blood as a payment. I'm not even gonna say you, for my sin. For my sin, and I know who I am. <laughs> He shed his blood for me. He shed his blood for you. And if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, his death on the cross breaks the power of sin. 
generational hurts, struggles, behaviors are broken in Jesus' name. I believe some people walked in this place this morning that had lids and have lids that were placed on their life that need to break in Jesus' name. And, and he breaks the mold and he lifts the lid and you are, you are new, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You are a new person who is living and ready to walk out and walk in freedom, a new life. So fix your eyes on Jesus and fix your eyes on the cross. My youth pastor told me this one time, he said, John, and it stuck with me for my 45 years I've, I've been alive. It says, John, whenever you feel like you are going to make a mistake in a decision, you feel like going towards that temptation, you feel like going towards that sin, I want you to picture the cross of Christ on the ground and Jesus crucified and beaten and bloodied, laying there looking at you on the cross and you have to step over that, you have to step over him to get to the thing you think is more important than what he died for. That right there, friends, now listen. All of these, what I gave you, guarding your heart, setting your mind, fixing your eyes, stepping over the cross, those are foolproof things that work. But I'm a fool. I'm flawed. But this, is, this has been my plan for my 45, well, not 45 years of life, but my, my, my years of life when my youth pastor told me this. And they work when we put them to work. When we actually fight to renew our mind. When we actually say, no, Jesus, you're more important than what that is. But the moment we take our eyes off of and we, we don't fix our eyes on, on Christ, but we fix our eyes on the storm or we fix our eyes on the thing, they don't, those, those things don't work. And so you picture the cross, you picture the, the sacrifice, and you picture, is this more worth it getting to that than the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for I. You see, true freedom is experienced when we're more consumed with the greater love of God and the greater love of Jesus in our life than entertaining anything else. That's when true freedom is found, when we fall more in love with Jesus than the things of this world. And so the cost of change, the cost of renewing our mind, the cost of breaking the mold is the price of obedience today. You see, blessing follows obedience, and I would, I would challenge you to test that out. <laughs> blessing follows obedience, and obedience changes generations. It changes family trees, and obedience lifts the very lid that the world has placed on us and the enemy has put over you, and obedience is born. It's not born out of obligation. Obedience is born out of a love for God that I love you so much that I wanna, I wanna live according to your word. Am I perfect? No. But God, help me to daily guard my heart, to set my mind, and to fix my eyes on you. You see, we have no idea what God was set in motion with our act of obedience. With one simple act of obedience, what could God do? So the world we live in, the weight we live with, the word we live by, and the walk we live out, that's your choice. It's your choice. That is your choice this morning, Seacoast, and those watching online. That is your choice to make. D.L. Moody said this. He's an evangelist and a teacher, and he said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a person fully consecrated to him. Consecrated meaning set apart. By God's help, I aim to be 
that person. Deuteronomy says, today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and cursings. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Oh, that you would choose to allow God to lift the lid off your life so that you would walk in freedom, so that your, the generations following you would walk in freedom. Breaking the mold brings freedom in your life, but breaking the mold sets future generations free. Oh, that you would choose life. You see, when they buried Jesus, they rolled a lid over his tomb. But that lid could not hold him, could not keep him away, could not hold him down. And the same power that rose him from the grave, that took the lid off of that grave, lives in you. Lives in you. Gives you the strength to daily fight, to renew your mind. When I'm walking in jealous, <laughs> jealousy or negativity, to allow me to be encouraging and content gives you the strength. So if you could shut your eyes with me and just have a moment of reflection of what God is maybe speaking into your heart, and I pray that he is speaking into your heart. I think there are many people in this room, a lot of us, for those of you who are, are here and you have a deep relationship with God, my prayer for you is that you would go deeper. What, what act of obedience is he asking you to go deeper? For those of you who are in this space and, and you're wanting to begin that relationship with Jesus, I'm, my prayer for you this morning is that you would begin today. Choose you this day, Jesus. And for those of you who are still doubting and questioning, I, my prayer for you is that you would doubt your doubts. You would question those, those questions and see Jesus for who he is. So today, he may be asking some of you that you need to know that in Jesus' name, that lid is gone. And some of you, God may want to use you to help remove the lid from others. And today, Jesus is simply saying, come to me. Come to me. All of you who are tired and burdened, come to me. All of you who are broken and hurting, I will give you rest. I will lift your lid. Come to me. It's simply saying, and it's very simple, and could it be that simple? Yes, I believe it is. Simply saying, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. Today, I need to be that new person. And I need your help to begin to walk out this new life. So if this is your prayer, if that's your prayer this morning, I would just love to see you lift your hand so I know who I am praying for. If you just lift your hand saying, John, I, I, I wanna begin that relationship with Jesus or I need to restart that relationship with Jesus or you know what, there were some lids that were placed in my life that I need Jesus, his help and his strength and the power of his Holy Spirit to break those lids and to lift those lids. Would you just lift those hands with me so I can pray with you and pray for you? You see, what you behold shapes what you believe and changes how you behave. So behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for this church and your people and the hands that were lifted across all of our campuses and across all of our services. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, those lids would be gone right now in Jesus' name. I pray that those who are saying, Lord, there's a lid of, of illness put upon my life. I pray in Jesus' name, healing.
I pray for those who are saying, I need to begin that relationship or restart that relationship. Lord, they are new, a new creation right now in Jesus' name. Neos, new. And Lord, I thank you for the sacrifice you gave on that cross for me, my life. Lord, may our lives in turn worship you and be a reflection of your love and your grace to others. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray. And everyone said, Amen.